Now, it is the hottest part of the day. Work is almost an impossibility. And sleep is kind of dozing off, maybe the only respite. So Abraham sits in the shade at the entrance of his tent. But he sits there, and I want you to note, it's the same Nan, but now he's got a new name. In chapter 18, we have Abraham, but in chapter 17, the one prior to this one, well, God changes his name. God changed his name when he was 99 years old. Now, names for the Hebrew people are significant. A name was more than just a designation. It was a It signified identity, and for some, it even signified destiny. To change a name was to exercise an awesome power over a person, for it meant a change in who that person was and in what he or she would do or even become. And God exercised that power over Abraham. Now, Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of many. And the irony here, this wasn't lost on Abraham. He was neither an exalted father or a father of many at this point. But you know, by changing his name, God set Abraham apart as his special servant with a special destiny to be a father of a great nation through which God would bless the entire earth. Now, God did the same thing to Sarai, right? She changed her name from Sarai to Sarah. And there's some debate over what these names mean. But we know that the name Sarah means princess. But that renaming stresses that she too belongs to God and that she would also give birth to nations and birth to kings. Interesting, God's grace had a funny surprise in store for both Abraham and Sarah. It had been 24 years since God first promised to give them children. I mean, here they were, a childless couple. They wait on God. They wanted to have a purpose. They waited for God. And then you know what happened? They got tired of waiting. And so they took matters into their own hand. And that's when Sarah brings her handmaiden, Hagar. And things just get kind of messy after that, right? rather difficult. But you know what's interesting? So many times we put the emphasis on the destination, on the place that we're traveling to, on the end. And I'm here to tell you that God always puts meaning in the journey. God puts meaning in the means. And so there was something happening here as Abram and Sarai journey. 
God's doing things in their life. God is developing their character. God is developing their faithfulness. God is helping them to grow. Maybe you find yourself right now in a season of waiting, and you keep saying to God, why? Can I get there yet? And God says, it's all right. We're going to get there. But let's not lose focus of the time that we have now and the time that God can use to develop us, develop our character, to forge our faith. It's also an opportunity for us to remember that God has a marvelous sense of humor. I hope you really believe that, and I know I do. I think God laughs a lot. I think God cries, and I think God laughs. If God didn't cry and laugh, why in the world would God have made me? Why in the world would God have made any fathers here on Father's Day, right? So, in our story, we find Abraham nodding off at the entrance to his tent when something catches his eye. Three men seem to appear out of nowhere, and something strange stirs in Abraham when he sees them. Something like fear, but maybe not quite. Maybe it's awe. There's also excitement and anticipation. And he rises immediately, and he rushes to where they stand. You know, hospitality is a holy and a sacred duty. And he bows low before them and he speaks. And he says, if I have found favor with you, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought so that you all may wash your feet and rest in the shade. And let me get you something to eat before you have to leave. Let me be your humble servant. You know, the perfect host is always the one who says to each guest, as they arrive, gosh, I'm so glad that you're finally here. Thank you for coming. You bless my home. You bless me. And when each person leaves, the host says things like, must you go so soon? Well, Abraham's just that. He is the absolute perfect host. And when they agree to stay and accept his hospitality, He hurries into the tent and he tells his wife, Sarah, quick, you know, bake some bread. He runs to his herd and he picks out one of his best calves and he has it slaughtered and cooked. He doesn't just provide lunch, y'all. He serves them a feast and he waits on them himself. For a while, the men eat in silence and then one says, So, where's your wife, Sarah? And Abraham responds, well, she's in the tent. And the stranger says, well, you know, I'm going to be back in nine months' time. And at that time, your wife, Sarah, is going to have a son. Now, Sarah, she wasn't just in the tent, right? She's in the tent, and she's standing right next to the flap, right there where the door is. 
And what is she doing? She, she's eavesdropping. She's listening to the conversation. And as she listens to the conversation, and since she and her husband are very old, and since Sarah has passed through menopause, she was very amused at what the stranger said. And you know, to herself, she laughs. And I'm sure she's thinking, here I am, an old woman with a worn out old husband. I can't have children. And then the stranger says to Abraham, so, why is she laughing? Why is she saying to herself that this is impossible? I mean, is anything impossible for God? And I love the way the scripture puts it. Is anything too wonderful for God? When I come back in nine months, she will have a son. Now at that, Sarah becomes afraid, not to say embarrassed. So she denies that she laughed. And she says, you know, hey, I didn't laugh. Oh, yes, she did. And you know what? When I come back in nine months, we'll see who has the last laugh. Now, this is an interesting encounter with God. And so scholars kind of debate, is this three angels or is this God? You know what? I have no problem saying, hey, we're having an encounter with God, whether it's through angels or not. And uh, we see that there's a, a nice counterbalance to the earlier stories about Abraham. Because previously in the chapters precede this one, what we've come to find out is we see Abraham's very kind of self-focused, right? He's always thinking about himself. But you know what? He's now become the epitome of generosity and kindness. And he's blessed. And he understands that he's blessed by these guests who come. And he treats them with royal hospitality. I mean, the Abraham, or I should say the Abram that we first see is self-centered and safeguards his own interests. But you know what? Abraham has truly become a good father and one we should emulate. So what is the meaning of Sarah's laugh? Or for that matter, what makes any of us laugh? What constitutes humor? Philosophers of great stature have contemplated this. Aristotle, Bergson, just to name a few, even Sigmund Freud. He described himself as a humorless chicken. And he wrote an essay entitled, Jokes and Their Relation to the Unconscious. I'm sure that's a real side splitter. (laughs) But you know, there are always a few basic elements that make something funny. One of the things that make things funny is you have to have an ideal of what human life should look like. And then it's contrasted with some surprise of incongruity, right? 
So we have that perfect image. And then what do we have? Reality. <laughs> How things really play out. I mean, a man slips on a banana peel and falls. Why is that funny? Well, first, a man should be able to walk without falling. That is our ideal. The truth is, we live in a sinful, broken world. So, somebody litters and a banana peel is in his path and he doesn't see it. And surprise, this imperfect man falls and we laugh. He goes from being the ideal to living in the reality. Humor is of vital importance to us. And humor is absolutely critical to our faith. Why? You know, my friends, if you can laugh at yourself, one of the things that it means is you have a proper perspective. You have a proper perspective of yourself. You have a proper perspective of life. It also means that, you know what, you don't take yourself too seriously. Now, let's be honest. As a pastor, I really do take what I do seriously. I just don't take myself seriously, okay? I am broken and fallible and imperfect and sinful, and I'm going to mess up. And it's funny. And I tell a lot of, I mean, I kind of count on that because then I tell you those stories here, right? Well, the other thing that it means is if we can laugh at ourselves, it points to humility. And if a humble person is the person who can learn. Prideful people cannot learn. You know why? Because they're already filled with everything. What's there to learn? They know it all. But if you're humble, you know that you don't know. And that's the first step to true learning. It's the first step to becoming a disciple, is to be able to say, okay, I don't know how to do this. Help me. You know, there, I, I, I tell my staff all the time, what we really want to do is to be mature Christians. And mature Christians really can do two things. The first thing they can do is that they can teach. They can teach other Christians. And the second thing that they can do is that they can learn. They're humble. Is that you? Do you have the ability to laugh at yourself? Do you have the ability to Maybe take what you do seriously, but not take yourself seriously. I mean, that's what we see here in the interaction that we're having with Abraham and Sarah and with God. Now, I just wanted to be put this on record, okay? Pastor Jason is not a fan of outdoor weddings. I didn't say I wouldn't do them, okay? You know, chill out. I'm just not a fan. And you want to know why? 
Because there are way too many variables that I can't control. And so I always, part of, you know, when I meet with the bride and the groom before a wedding, I always look at them in the eye and I tell them as seriously as I can, here's the deal. You need to expect at least one thing to go wrong. And when that one thing, and it could be more than one thing, okay, but at least one thing, I promise you, it's going to happen. And if that one thing or more than one thing ruins your wedding, you're too serious. You might want to reconsider getting married because you might be doing it for the wrong reason. So outdoor weddings are difficult. And what makes them difficult are the bugs, the hot, the cold, you know, getting the sound just right, and maybe the wind blowing. Those are the things that seem to put me uh, or give me problems. Now, and this has probably been around 20 years ago now, there was a couple that wanted to get married. They wanted to do it outside. We're in the hill country. It was in the springtime, and it really was beautiful, and they were wildflowers in bloom. And one of the reasons they wanted to get married is they wanted their dog to be in the wedding. And uh, so, okay, I'm kind of easy, right? I know God loves everybody, all creatures, great and small. And uh, we even rehearsed with it, and it worked really well because what was going to happen is you know, all the groom, the, the groom and the groomsmen were up front with me, and then the dog is the ring bearer, and they wanted the dog. They were going to sit in the back, and they were going to. They had a leash, and they'd let him off the leash, and this dog walked right down the center aisle, and then came and sat through the rehearsal right at the owner's feet. And then when it came time to get the rings, they were going to have like a little purse around its neck. And they were going to take the rings out. And I'm like, okay, I'm convinced this seems like it's going to work. Well, the next day, of course, was the wedding. And everything was going well, which always makes me nervous. (laughs) And I must say, the dog looked sharp, right? Because the dog, you know, it's a, it's a boxer. And uh, it had what, when you, when you go and buy a sports coat or a suit coat, they always tell you, you know, what you're looking for is that uh, the V cut, athletic cut, where you got the shoulders coming out and then kind of tapers into the waist, right? Well, that dog was perfect. It had that broad shoulders, tapered, had a little tux on. It looked good. You know, me, when I go to the tailor, I get the Santa Claus cut. Goes out a little bit. So it came time. Everybody's doing well. Dogs in the back looking sharp. Groom and the groomsmen with me. It's time for him to come down the aisle and take the leash off. He starts to come. He makes it halfway. Now it's not the dog's fault, right? Because what happens? From out of nowhere, a cat (laughs) shows up. 
and the cat is in the middle of the aisle and the dog's in the middle of the aisle and they have like this stare down for what seemed like five seconds. I'm sure it wasn't that long. And then the cat bolts. And then I promise you, the dog looks at us at the front. And it's almost like he's saying, and I'm projecting here, I know it. And it's almost like he's saying to us with his eyes, I'm sorry. (laughs) But I'm a dog. (laughs) This is what I do. And the dog bolts. Now, it's really, at this point, nobody's laughing, except for me, internally. <laughs> and, uh, and the groom looks at me, and he said, Pastor, there's probably $10,000 worth of jewelry on that dog's neck. <laughs> I looked at him, I said, well, good luck catching him. <laughs> Y'all better go. And so they did. They You know, they chased the dog around. The cat finally got treed. They got got a leash on the dog, and everything came back. Everybody got some water. We hadn't really started the service yet anyway, so we're still doing good. We got the guys lined up, and the music played. Everybody walked down. We had our wedding, and it was good. And I'm thinking the whole time, I wonder what's going to happen here. Well, at the end, the videographer comes up to the bride and groom and says, hey, I I, I want you to know, I I took video of you guys chasing the dog around in the field, but you know what? We can delete it. And together they both said, no, no, that stays. That was awesome. And we're going to be laughing at that for years. And I had to say, you're going to have the best. If you're ever sitting around with a bunch of couples talking about your wedding, you're going to win. <laughs> okay? You can't, nobody can top that. And I also thought to myself, you know what? This couple, if they can continue to laugh together, they're going to stay married for a lifetime and to each other for a lifetime. Because let's be honest, right? You got to have laughter. Laughter means we have perspective. Laughter means we're humble. Laughter means we're not laughing at somebody else. We're laughing at ourselves. We're laughing at our humanity. We're laughing because, let's face it, it's funny. So why don't we join God in some holy humor? Why don't we laugh at ourselves? I mean, that's what we need more of. We need more of saying, Lord, help me to laugh more. Help me to be humble. Help me to grow in my faith. Because I'm here to tell you that laughing at ourselves and having that holy humor is the way we're gonna grow our faith. And we see it right here with Abraham and Sarah. Now, Sarah's laugh, let's be honest, Sarah's laugh was a laugh of disbelief. And when she got called out, she denied it because of her embarrassment. But what if when God said, in nine months, Sarah, you're going to have a son, 
What if her laugh had been one of joy and one of surprise? My friends, that would be a laugh of faith. I mean, I want you to think about this. Do you laugh at others? Or do you not laugh at all? Or do you laugh about yourself in humility with God? Humor, I promise you, will lead you to a deeper faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.